This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. I think that's the easiest way to bottom line what race is, that it's a story about human value. God says human value is tied to our image and likeness of God, right? The Bible says human value is tied to the doctrine of the Imago Dei. Race says that your value is not tied to the Imago Dei. It's tied to where you fall on the racial hierarchy. This is Where You're From, a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us as we ask another Christian thought leader where you're from and discover how their life experiences and expertise, even if we may disagree with something they say, offer us an important perspective that's worth thinking about. Welcome to Where You're From. I'm Russell Berry. We all have blind spots in our lives, like when we can't see a stain on a shirt or a mark left on our face. But blind spots can cause damage too, like a blind spot when you're driving that causes a car accident. And then there are blind spots in our beliefs or experiences, and those can be even more difficult to see. On this episode of Where You're From, we want to think about what happens when those blind spots prevent us from seeing racial injustice and inequality. Today, I'm talking to Daniel Hill about his journey in discovering his own blind spot. It all started when a friend asked Daniel to learn about Daniel's own culture, something he didn't even realize he had. This was the beginning of a process that led to what he later called becoming white awake. And as we will find out today, he was not always aware of racial hierarchy or his own internal bias toward men and women of color. Let's begin with asking pastor and author Daniel Hill about overcoming his blind spots on where you're from. I was 24. I was working at a large church here in the suburbs, and uh, I was officiating a wedding. And it was a white woman and a man whose parents were from immigrants from India. And he said, "Hey, you're going to get a deep dive into Indian culture." <laughs> and so that night before the wedding rehearsal, you know, they had all the kind of Indian cuisine and dancing and music, and it was a real cultural immersion for me. Mm-hmm. And it was a very magical experience for me. So I went to thank him for inviting this and. Uh, this was a gregarious guy who very rarely talked about serious things. But when I, I went up to him and I said, hey, thank you so much for this. Um, I'm so grateful to have been able to see your culture. And I lament that as a white person, I don't have a culture. So this was a real gift to me. And he got very serious, put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Daniel, not only do you have a culture, but when your culture comes in contact with other cultures, that almost always wins. One of the greatest gifts you could give me for my wedding is actually get serious about learning your own culture. And then he went back out onto the dance floor and (laughs) kind of left me standing there. But that, of all the moments where I could have seen it, for whatever reason, that was the one where God, God just kind of broke something open in that. I was actually more offended than anything. Really? Um, Yeah. So I don't want to ask. How does that feel? I don't want to overstate the like. Yeah. uh, You know, it felt because I was so naive about it that I really did believe I didn't have a culture. And then to not only think I had a culture, but to believe that all white people from all European countries could somehow be lumped into this idea called white culture. And then that he was kind of insinuating that there was kind of a power dynamic. Like at every level, I felt kind of offended by his mm-hmm. suggestion. And so if I'm being honest, it was less of a learning 
posture, more of a defensive posture of wanting to discredit what he had said. But that really needing to understand what he had said began the kind of journey of my kind of quote unquote wide awake. Mm. So what was the thing that was what you thought uh, your faith was emphasizing and teaching growing up prior yeah prior yeah, to I would your say win. you know the term we use for it now is colorblind I would say that's the term my dad who was a pastor didn't use that term um, but I feel like the secular version of colorblind and the Christian version are similar but slightly different so I would have had the, the, the Christian version the Christian version which is not all wrong it's just partially dangerous but the Christian version kind of minimizes racial cultural differences right it says we're all human beings mm-hmm. we're all made in God's image we're all sinners in need of a savior right and so the commonness of humanity is what should be emphasized and then there's kind of an asterisk in there that like talking about racial cultural differences actually makes the problem worse yeah that you're bringing up unnecessary kinds of hurts and pains when really what we should be focusing on is the common experience i've heard that and even focusing on the gospel that it's a distraction yeah i would say those are two different things yeah yeah i I think the colorblind approach got it yeah is kind of basing itself on kind of yeah focus on the commonality and then i do i think there's a whole another issue of like the way we talk about the gospel that also i think kind of hinders our ability to have these conversations so in the sense of as it related directly to the issue of race and ethnicity it was like hey let's just focus on our commonness not our distinctions right and then if you had to say like in that time period how you understood the essential core message of christianity to the world what would it have been before this experience, before that conversation on the yeah. wedding dance yeah, floor? Yeah, right. The, the kind of theological conversion that we go through kind of in a deepening of the gospel, right? Um, so, yeah, it's like separate but linked, right? So, I, I would say, in a word, probably it's justice. Sadly, still in a lot of white evangelical spaces in particular, which is kind of what I've been formed, anything that's around anything that's outside of just spiritual justice of us being made right with God, anything that kind of touches the social realm is often seen as kind of a social gospel that's outside of the core dimension, not only outside of the core dimension of the gospel, but even potentially kind of a threat to it. So you're right. Like to be able to have the spiritual equipment needed to have these conversations, you actually have to have a deeper understanding of the gospel than we often have. And I definitely think those two things are related for sure. Okay. So you had this mindset coming in of emphasis on commonness and yes. and whatnot. Then you have this abrupt confrontation right. on uh, at this uh, wedding. Yeah. And so then what do you do after that conversation? Like that challenge that you were given, you know, the gift that you can give me to mm-hmm. learn about your culture and, yeah. and understand that it's power. What did you do with that? Well, it was a long process. I understand better what was happening now looking back than I did during it. Um, the initial confusion that happened is I started asking around in my own circles, my own white Christian evangelical circles. And what I realized is just people in my circles just didn't talk about stuff like this. They didn't talk about culture. They didn't talk about race. So there was one of two responses. There was just straight out confusion. Like, what are you asking? I don't even understand. Or there was this thing we had just addressed where like there's kind of this programming we have that if you're talking about race or justice kind of issues something about that feels dangerous so i would i would i would alternate between kind of just indifference and then kind of suspicion within my own circles and so that felt that actually felt confusing in a way that hadn't before Mm -hmm. because i hadn't been thinking about it so i wasn't aware of that but now that i was trying to understand and while i was still in a defensive posture i was trying to understand and it just was not being talked about in the circles i was in And what was it exactly that you were trying to understand in those conversations uh well i i 
I was trying to understand biblically how to think about culture, um, and then I think more significantly, trying to make sense of the American system of race from a biblical perspective was something that there was just zero resources within my evangelical community. So it's almost like that moment gave you an awareness of, wait a minute, like there's stuff going on about how our differences... And there's stuff happening in our world right now, and my Christianity doesn't know how to speak to it. Exactly. So then you start asking, and and initially it sounds like there wasn't a whole lot of help. So then what do you do? So I really did take kind of a crooked journey because it actually led to a faith crisis for me, honestly, Mm -hmm. um, because I had to go outside of the church to start studying race. And when you study race outside of the church, you find that people are very antagonistic about religion because the general perspective is that religion has made the matters way worse than they already were and has been complicit partner to a lot of the chaos that's been created. And so honestly, there, there was this period of a couple of years where as I was learning about race and learning how the church didn't talk about race, it did kind of start to elicit this question in me of like, are you Christian just because it's what you grew up in, you know? And if you would have grown up in India, would have you been Hindu? And if you would have grown up in the Middle East, would you have been Muslim, you know? And um, I used to always thought, no, but I started to wonder, am I only a Christian because I grew up in a white setting, right? Because when I got outside of that white Christian bubble, there was so much hostility about white Christianity. And so so it was, I can summarize now, but the reality of it is it was a two to three year journey of trying to make sense of it that in order to understand the problem of race, I had to go outside of the church. And every time I try to come back into the church to make sense of it, I would be received kind of with, again, either indifference or skepticism or even outright hostility. That's that's wild. Okay. So, so then, you know, it sounds like there's still, you're hitting walls, you're hitting walls. When, when do you experience a breakthrough with all this? Well, um, I'm going to like be risk oversimplification here, but what I started realizing was the Jesus I had grown up in white evangelical spaces wasn't big enough to have these conversations. And when I learned about race outside of the church, I realized that without Jesus, there's no way to have these conversations. Okay. Now there's some people that'll hear you say the Jesus that I grew up with wasn't big enough. Yeah. And that can go in a whole lot of different directions. Explain, because yeah. so some people might say, are you saying that Jesus isn't big, big enough to deal with race? Wait a minute. Yeah, right, what do right, you right, mean right. by no, that? Jesus, <laughs> the Jesus I love is the one, the, the Colossians 1 Jesus, who's over all things and reconciling all things to himself. I just think uh, that I didn't get to learn that full Jesus growing up. Got um, it. Um, again, for one, even we've addressed one of them, this this kind of false dichotomy between spiritual transformation and social transformation right. is, I think, an affront to Jesus, right? Uh-huh. He's so clearly integrated those together and right. how he preached about the kingdom and taught about the kingdom and lived out the, the kingdom. Um, I would say the ideology of white supremacy is one of the greatest threats to kind of the soul of our country. And most white Christians have no idea how to think about that biblically. Which means to me, they don't have a big enough Jesus because the biggest threat that's facing us all of our country, there's not even like elementary understanding of it within the white Christian church, generally speaking. And to me, that's a sign like we can't fight this thing. Jesus is the one who's fighting this. We need to join him. But the fact that we don't even know it's a fight and that we don't know how to join the fight to me says we have too small of a view of Jesus. Got it. Got it. Well, I want to get there, but first I want to kind of, cause yeah, like you said, that was right. a two to three year journey. Yeah. You wanted to incorporate some of these things you were learning mm-hmm. into a new phase of ministry. Yeah. You know, share, tell us more about that. Yeah. Well, at the time, diversity was kind of the main thing I was trying to pursue. I started a little satellite thing in the city through that. And a big part of our goal was to like start diving more deeply into con- ideas of culture diversity and social justice and stuff like that. So those were very central facets for it. 
we were just having very little luck. You know, no matter how much I talked about it, no matter how much I pushed for it. What were your expectations of what you would see happen when you got there? You know, honestly, I had just such a naive understanding of, like, I thought the separation was just because nobody was trying, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I thought segregation within the church was because nobody was trying or nobody was talking about it. And so, I mean, if I'm being honest, that was back when the Matrix was popular, right? And so I had, like, very much a messianic kind of complex where I thought I'd be the Neo, you know, mm-hmm. or I'd, like, show up in the city and everybody would be like, where has this church been, you know? And, like, perfect percentages of each racial group come together in harmony, you know, mm-hmm. within the city. So I think I probably did at some level think all those things were going to happen because I preached on it every single week and we talked about it nonstop. That was the complaint that came back was that I had lost sight of the gospel because I talked about cultural diversity so much and social justice so much. Um, so, yeah, I was all in, but even still, it was, yeah, it made almost no dent whatsoever. So I realized this was a much bigger thing than I had given it credit for. And then what did you call it? Metro 212. And why did you call it Metro 212? Um, Bill Hybels used to use this analogy of 212 degrees, that that's kind of where water turns to steam. So it's mm-hmm. kind of the point of transformation. So it's kind of this idea of like, we're in the city, we want pursuing transformation. It was a way to kind of merge together a couple images. That's a pretty, yeah, that's a pretty uh, bold and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, huge expectation that this is going to be the turning point. Yeah. And so when did you realize, wow, this is not like going like there's usually an event or a moment where you, where you, you know, as a leader of like leading something where you go, this isn't it. This isn't doing it. When did mm-hmm. you realize that? Well, I, you know, I mean, I knew pretty quickly it was just in the sense that it grew very quickly, but it was all white, you know, and so it was obvious that there was a lot of white people who agreed with me that we should have a culturally diverse thing you know, in the city that pursued transformation. So at a superficial level, I knew we weren't accomplishing the vision we had hoped for, but it was when there was a black leader in the city who saw what we were doing and he invited me to meet with some core pastors. There's four pastors from the different big racial groups in the city. So there was a black pastor, white pastor, Korean American pastor, Puerto Rican pastor. And, um, Again, I had my kind of neo moment. I thought I was going to come in there and explain this to them. They were going to be like, oh, wow, this is amazing. Where have you been, right? So I shared with this vision what we were trying to do and where I was getting stuck. <laughs> the Puerto Rican white pastor went first, and he said, I'm trying to listen to you, but everything you say is so paternalistic, it's really hard to, to <sighs> stomach. And I'm embarrassed to say I had never heard the term paternalistic before. So it, if I wouldn't have seen his face, I wouldn't have known if it was a positive <laughs> or negative term. But it was clear from his intonation that it was a negative term. Mm. Um, so I wrote that down in my notebook. Don't be paternalistic. <laughs> Look up paternalistic and then don't be, don't be paternalistic. What, what, what is it? Um, paternalistic is it's, it's rude in the sense that you think you're above somebody else, that yeah. you think you're fundamentally superior. So that even if your equals, or in this case, I was younger than them, but you, you still feel like in a fatherly kind of a way you can tell people what to do and where they should go because you're just kind of the, or that the you sense, have the answers yeah that you've got the answers and that got they it. need those answers um, then the Korean American pastor went next and he said you keep talking about cultural diversity but everything I heard you say was in kind of a black white frame like do you have I mean do you have any idea how broad of a term Asian American is do you have any idea how many different countries and histories and even intercultural kind of conflicts that represents like tell me what you've done to understand that and I was like yeah yeah learn everything about Asian history, right? That was like my second, you know. And then um, the white pastor <laughs> went next and he said, if I had a dollar for every white person who thought they were going to save the city, I'd be a rich man by now. So if you're even here in five years, I'll be shocked. Wow. Like, All right, stay at least five years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then the black pastor went last and he actually said, um, I think it's noble what you're trying to do, but even if you could figure this out, 
Like the segregation still goes so deep in Chicago. Black people never go to a church pastored by a white person. So you just be, you could save yourself a lot of harm if you just like kind of bailed now. So I think that's when I realized like, yeah, I'm not some gift to the city and I'm not entering into something where this isn't already being wrestled with. Like this is a centuries old, sinful, diabolical, dark kind of history that's here. And um, I need to like stop trying to save everything and like I need to go on a pretty serious journey of learning now. That sounds like a very hard meeting. Like oh for four, right? Like just yeah, right, right. One but I think one. I need. I think I think if there would have been any ambiguity, I might have kind of heard something different. So I think it was really important for me to realize like I'm not part right and part wrong or <laughs> close. So to just need to tweak something. Wow. And so I needed something that I mean, you're right. It was very hard. It was also ultimately very transformational. I needed something very stark like that to shake me out of my sense that I was close to seeing it. Got it. So, okay, so you pick yourself up from that, you know, that that truth-telling session, and then what do you do with that? What happens mm-hmm. to Metro 212? What do you, what's the next steps? Um, yeah, I feel like that was when I really started to understand privilege for the first time, because I wanted to just kind of sink back. I don't talk about white privilege all that much, but I think the concept of privilege, um, uh, Reverend Julian Deschazier, you know this is in the book, he's a pastor and activist around the South Side, and he says privilege is simply the ability to walk away. Hmm, yeah. Yep. And I think there's more to it than that, but there really is something kind of profound about that. But I do, I, I felt God say there's a reason, like you're awakening to something and it's scary. And I think awakening is, it's it's cool mm. in one sense, but it is scary, right? Like if you've been in the dark for a long time, the light is painful. actually kind of a scary thing, right? I mean, it's like, it's overwhelming. Um, so I, I, I had this sense that I was needing to go on kind of a new kind of a journey, but it was pretty scary. Jesus was causing me to calling me to kind of step out into the unknown with him. Now you use the word privilege, yeah. you know, break that down for us. Yeah. I, I just, for me, the most important part of privilege when it comes to the white journey is just staying in the conversation. I think because white people's survival is not at stake based on the system of race, so we can think about it or not think about it. It's literally just purely theoretical for us. So it's a privilege to decide whether we want to theoretically engage with this or not, whether we want to choose to stay in conversations, whether we want to choose to be in it for a little while and then walk away when it becomes uncomfortable. I actually think that's the most common and powerful form of privilege that gets exercised. When we come back, Daniel Hill will describe the experiences that led up to one of the scariest moments of his life when his speaking out about racial injustice led to hate mail and death threats. You're listening to Where You're From. If you're enjoying Where You're From, would you take a moment to write a quick review and give us some stars? Podcast platforms like iTunes and Google promote highly rated shows. So a one-sentence review of what this episode or show means to you and a quick five-star rating will help these important stories reach more people. Thank you for your help and keep listening for more of Where You're From. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu slash admit. Hey friends, my name is Jade Gustafson and I'm one of the producers for Where You From. 
Before we return to our conversation with Daniel Hill, I wanted to share a quick teaser of our next episode with Dr. Alma Saragosa Petty. This is Where You're From. I mean, that's partly why I went into education, because as I went up the ladder in my own educational journey, there were less and less folks like me. You know, there was more and more folks that were already from privileged positions in our society. There were already folks that are third, fourth generation college goers. But the knowledge of our people, like, and by that I mean, like, you know, just the hood, but also like Latina, and we were getting like nothing up there into the echo chamber of what is the ivory tower, you know? And so I was just like, we need more voices up here to be saying like, nope, pause. That makes no sense to call people this because guess what? I'm that person and I don't appreciate being called at risk because at one point I have to stop being at risk, you know? And even as a graduate doctoral student, that was a way that we were referred to, you know, like people that were from minority backgrounds. Welcome back to Where You're From. I'm Rasul Berry. Before we hit play on part two of my conversation with Daniel Hill, just a quick reminder that the show notes are available in the podcast description. There you will find not only the talking points for today's show and links to our social accounts, but also links to Daniel's books, White Awake and White Lies, as well as a link to a special edition of our daily bread titled This Far by Faith. This is a free digital download celebrating legacies of the black church. The download is yours for free. Just copy the link in the podcast description or visit our website, whereyou'refrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from, dot O-R-G. Before the break, Daniel described a humbling moment in his life, a rough meeting with four pastors that was life-changing for him. Daniel said he was tempted to run and hide. And if he could have foreseen a moment in his life when he would have received hate mail and death threats, he may have quit. But he had a sense that God was waking him up to something he needed to understand. And so he began to do some more research and discovered that even the term race was much more complicated than he expected. Let's pick up on the story there. You're listening to Where You're From. So so the phrase that all the race scholars used was um, that race is a social construct. Um, and that was super confusing for me because the, the idea that race is a social construct means that human beings created it. All right. And so I actually thought that was a challenge to theology. So I resisted that language for a long time of race is a social construct. I realized it totally is. So, so like when I'm talking with the Christians, I say if there's one word you would associate with the, the word race, it should be the word evil. Mm. Everything about the system of race was evil. And that's an important starting point. And I think we use words carelessly sometimes. I think when we use race, we shouldn't use it interchangeably with like ethnicity or culture. You know, we call a multicultural church, a multi-ethnic church, a multiracial church. We use them all interchangeably. I think the word race, when understood correctly, should be thought of exclusively as an evil word. Um, it's a system that we created where we divided wow. up mm-hmm. human beings into groups, right? I, I think it's probably a fairly objective statement to say the two greatest sins of our Western world, our nation within it, the two greatest sins we ever committed was in minimum displacement, someone called genocide of native people, um, and then the system of slavery, right? Mm. The system of transatlantic slavery. It's the two most grotesque, barbaric, far-reaching, dehumanizing diabolical kind of things that have happened and the system of race was really created to make sense of those right Mm -hmm. and I think that's the easiest way to bottom line what race is that it's a story about human value that says this is how it is 
in direct contrast with God. God says human values tied to our image and likeness of God, right? right. The Bible says human values tied to the doctrine of the Imago Dei. Race says that your value is not tied to the Imago Dei. It's tied to where you fall on the racial hierarchy. Hmm. There's a racial hierarchy that said whiteness is inherently superior to all other human beings. Mm. It said blackness is inherently inferior to all other human beings. And it continues to say that any other national background finds its value on this hierarchy between white and black. So it's not just a white and black conversation, but it is a white and black poll, right? Like superiority is associated with whiteness, inferiority is associated with blackness. Race is built off of that. That's what the social construct is. It was to justify genocide and conquest and it was just used to justify slavery and um in yeah right so lots can be said but in a nutshell it comes down to this hierarchy right yeah and those are very like you said you just kind of compressed hundreds of years of history and those are heavy things to try to figure out what does that mean for today so one of the things we're trying to do is understand historically how the story was used to kind of justify these kind of far-reaching kind of sinful structures, but how the stories that made those work are still out here. They still are part of the kind of fabric of our different institutions, right? So education would be one of the places where you can very clearly see the narrative of racial hierarchy still at play. Mm -hmm. Um, The the, the other kind of social science synonym that gets used for the narrative of racial hierarchy is implicit bias, right? So implicit bias is that we have these images of kind of goodness that we associate with whiteness, these kind of right. images of badness or dangerous or less than or within educational settings, historically blackness has been associated with the least intelligent, right? Which I hate yeah. to say that, but that's yeah. always been part of the racial hierarchy, right? That because this narrative says black people are less intelligent, more dangerous, less capable, more, you know, it's all bad, less and, and more. And I think that's what uh, in the Brown versus Board of Education uh, trial that the uh, black sociologist, Dr. Kenneth Clark, was demonstrating with the Dow right. experiment, That's where right. he was showing how this narrative uh, was so, actually impacting so black powerful. children to point, you know, they would have a black Dow and a white Dow right. and say, which one is smarter? The black child would pick the white right. Dow. Which one is better, good, they would pick the white yeah. Dow. So that's that. When a couple yeah. of years ago, Anderson Cooper did a revised kind of version of that to yeah. see, and he worked with a famous sociologist. And what they found is that basically nothing's moved. Wow. Yeah, that that yeah, it's it's heartbreaking. We showed it at church. It was actually a really difficult moment. We showed you get this cute, precious little black girl, and you've got five pictures, right, from the whitest to the darkest. And he says, which one's the smartest? She points to the whitest girl, and he says, which one's the dumbest? And she mm. points to the darkest skin. He says, which one's going to do the best in life? And she points to the lightest skin. Mm. Uh, to, to put an exclamation point on that, we had a family at our church, black family at our church, who's like, that can't be true. That can't be true. That can't be true. Their daughter was four at the time. So they brought their, they went home. And this is a two-parent family where they tell their daughter how wonderful she is all the time, right? Mm-hmm. And they went home and redid the test, and her, their four-year-old daughter did the exact same thing. Wow pointed to the white girl as the one that's going to do the best, that's the mm. prettiest, that's the smartest. Um, and, and so that's where you start to see, like, this This is not some politically correct kind of thing where we're trying to talk just right. This is kind of a principality or stronghold that kind of gets into hearts and minds in terms yeah. of who's viable and who's not. Yeah. One of the things you talk about in the book that kind of, I think, paints a picture in a very, very personal way is a young lady named Stephanie that uh, I think uh, was mentioned by the author, Dr. Tatum, 
in her book. Maybe if you tell that story, it can kind of help people see how that narrative of racial hierarchy or difference mm-hmm. plays itself out. She told the story of her parents. They both grew up in poor and poverty settings. They got married, really wanted to make sure their kids had access to a higher level of education that they had than they had in mm-hmm. the poverty schools. They actually moved to Wheaton out here in the Chicagoland area, um, which we're still at a point in history, good schools is always going to be an all white school, right? Mm-hmm. That's just, a, it's, we have these kind of code words now, but you know, you have to go to an all white setting, generally speaking, right? Mm-hmm. To get to the access to the kind of social services services that are associated with human flourishing and so the parents decided to uh, move to Wheaton and um, when Stephanie was in third grade um, she was at the dinner table and mom said how was school today and Stephanie said good and Stephanie said oh yeah a bunch of my friends got tested for the um, advanced placement track within the school mom's like did you get tested for it she's like no I don't know why and like her mom's heart sunk, you know, and so because Stephanie had been the highest scorer ever since kindergarten in her classes. So mom mm-hmm. went in, school teacher didn't know why she didn't get it, the principal didn't know why, everybody was just like, sorry, just somehow it was an oversight. They had Stephanie take it. Stephanie had the highest score in her test, in her, in her, in her school, got immediately bumped up to the advanced placement thing. So Stephanie, who's now a doctor, said, that was the most critical moment of my life. <laughs> because if my mom didn't catch that, I would not have gone to the advanced placement track. And it wouldn't matter from that point forward what I did. I would have had no chance to stay on the academic track necessary to eventually become a doctor. And so do I think that the teacher was racist? Do I think the principal was racist? No. Like I don't, In fact, I'll bet you if you would have asked that teacher, if you would have asked that administrator, they would have said, we care deeply about diversity. Mm-hmm. But you can very clearly prove that there are these biases that are associated with assuming certain kind of students will do better and certain kind of, certain kind of students will be worse. And so it's the accidental forms of this. It's the unnamed forms yeah. that actually become more dangerous in a lot of ways, right? It would be a nice, simple story if there was a KKK person behind the curtain right. saying, right. we're not going to let the black students right. do it. It's actually more dangerous that it's mm-hmm. in hearts and minds and in unchecked kind of a way now you you mentioned this in spiritual language yeah talking about principalities yeah um is that like hyperbole is that being extreme no, or is I think that when yeah. i talk about we don't have a theological lens at the most basic level jesus calls himself truth right, right? john 14 6 i am the way the truth and the life john 8 you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free at the most basic level the devil is thought of as a liar Right, it said in multiple the places. That's John eight. He says in three ways: the devil's a liar, his native tongue is that of lies, which is a really profound way to talk about how evil works. That's got a native language, mm. and its native language is that of lies, and it's the father of lies. Right. So anywhere there's an individual lie, that there, there's something demonic about that. I think it, it sounds so supernatural when we talk about that, but it's kind of like how the screw tapes letter works, right? Of just like mm. showing that like darkness is real. It's yeah. like around, right? And it works through division. It works through trying to get us separated from the truths of God. So I think an individual lie is dangerous enough, but this notion of the father of lies, mm. like I think that gets to like where are lies clustered up, where are lies swarmed together, where have lies kind of enmeshed in such a way where that that's that's how I would think biblically of what a stronghold is or a principality is, is wherever you see kind of a fathered <laughs> protected swarm of lies together and that's what makes race so uniquely dangerous is a single person who believes that somebody's less than is dangerous enough but when you've got a whole family that thinks of that lie when you've got a whole town that thinks of that lie when you get a whole generation of people who buy into that lie when it becomes multi-generational and the lie continues to get passed from generation to generation to generation that that's to me when something's a principality when something that should be so basic right. to expose and reveal is actually so difficult right. to reveal and then it builds 
narratives and stories and even the way we look at history and the way we look at the present all gets shaped through that lie. Now, the, the other thing that was insightful and eye-opening to me is you talk about how this lie or this stronghold doesn't just impact negatively people of color mm-hmm. or black people. You, you actually use this word white trauma mm-hmm. to talk about how very people who one would consider like the the privileged group yeah. are actually also in a significant way harmed by it. Right. How is that possible? So, so for one, I mean, lies are dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. And so if this is true, that this lie is being broadcast all the time and we've just never paid attention to it, like just at a very minimum means we're living under a milieu of lies mm-hmm. and are just oblivious to it, right? I mean, yeah. that has to do, even if we can't detect what the damage is, that just has to do damage, right? That right. you're living under lies. That's yeah. one of the big differences of being a racially conscious person of color, right? Is at least you're aware of the lie. Like life is super hard, like navigating those lies, but at least you know they're there, right? In right. some ways, like you could say that there's a soul advantage and with a starting point of like you see what you're up against right so for us to be in this and not even realize we're in it Mm. is one kind of danger i think the other danger though is this is where the truth and lies thing i think becomes very important because the history of race is very ugly honestly and it would be bad enough to not tell it to just to pretend it didn't happen that's actually a form of lying to not tell it but unfortunately, many of us have been brought up in a system that doesn't just ignore the past. It actually retells the story of the past. Okay, so what is the trauma that you you say that this causes to white people? Yeah, it's, it, and I want to acknowledge it's, that's, a, that's a controversial term, calling it uh, okay. uh, trauma. So it comes from Mark Charles, who's a native theologian, and he just wrote a book with Sung Chan Ra called um, Unsettling Truths. So he differentiates clearly like somebody who's traumatized in the oppressed, the one who's the, 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 the victim in something. Right, that's right. trauma, right? Like the, that's the danger of even using this term is to like associate what happens to the as oppressor a, a with what happens to the victim. Right, right. But he actually, it comes out of a very personal place where he developed this. Um, he was, he was, when he was a teenager, he was driving his car and he got in his accident and his brother got killed in the accident. <sighs> And so clearly his brother is the one who was, I mean, he died, right? But like that did something to him, right? It traumatized Mark in a certain kind of way to have to have been on the other end of the one who was complicit with this. And in his case, of course, that was accidental, right? But it's something you have to live with. So what Mark says is when white people discover what white people did to get to where we are, for a lot of people, they're going to be in denial and not even want to interact with it. They're just going to minimize whoever's saying it. But for those who get past that and start interacting with the history as it is, it's there, there's a traumatizing kind of reality to it, right? Like the brutality of slavery, right? This is another one where I was often taught that like, yeah, slavery was not great, but it's how a lot of black people became Christians. There's a lot of good to it too. But there was nothing good about slavery, right? It was constant rape, right? It was constant torture. It was dehumanization constantly, right? It's, it's all the worst things that could happen in a human experience, right? When, and, and this happens when white people watches, you know, uh, these movies about slavery, you know, and it's traumatizing to be like that. Y- you feel like dissonance, right? That can't be what really, mm. that can't be what was normal, right? But it mm. was what was normal, right? Mm. But it's so far disconnected from the kind of sanitized versions that right. we've learned of it that it's kind of traumatizing yeah. to come face to face with what really happened. Got it. Got it. Okay, so you you start to grasp this better and more. So, you know, and you say, okay, my time in my previous ministry in the suburbs is coming to an end. So what do you do to what's your next move 
to so live in that I, reality. I'm not. I'm not recommending this is the path people would take. Um, <laughs> I started a church, um, mm-hmm. but there was a reason for the people. Often say, "Why didn't you just go work at a black church or Latino church?" I think that's totally fair to say. But I loved and do. I, I loved the Bible. I knew the Bible was the answer to this. But I was also aware of the fact that the way I was learning the Bible in white centric circles was just wasn't enough. Like it was, you know, Ray Bakke, who was a professor at Moody for a long time, says, "If you read the Bible with a middle class lens, you'll always get a middle class application." Mm. <laughs> right. So it's just this notion that like what questions you're asking, what you're looking for will filter. It's not that the Bible's not true. It's just that we sometimes draw from it just at the limit of what we want to hear from it. So honestly, I felt like I needed to preach my way into a deeper understanding of the gospel. Mm. So that's really why I started this. I really didn't know if this church was going to work, but I knew I needed to like preach in such a way where it wasn't like our, our Sunday services weren't being measured by how fast are they growing? Are we hitting all this metrics and all these kinds of things? Because that was going to dilute the experience of like just the honest, hardcore discipleship kind of stuff. All right, so I, I know, you know, so you're going down this road and you're starting a church, and then this thing happens in Chicago that um, not only the city, but the nation takes notice of, and you kind of find yourself with some national attention. Uh, what happened? So there was um, a situation where a teenager, Laquan McDonald, got killed when he shouldn't have. Um, and what made this one particularly egregious was that there was a multi-tiered cover-up between the police department, the district attorney, the mayor. Um, And so when it finally came out that not only he had been killed, but that there had been this immense cover-up, there was kind of this immense backlash within the city, particularly in the black community, of just kind of, once again, this history of, Mm. you know, kind of cover-up and abuse of power. Um, Yeah, so there was a prayer vigil with some black pastors where I was invited to share. And when I prayed for repentance, there was a number of national kinds of things over there, including CNN. So they asked me to come on CNN after that, which felt weird because there was all these black pastors who had prayed similar kinds of things. But the fact that there was a white pastor there, you know, um, so they asked me to be on. So I asked all the black pastors first. I wouldn't have done it if they didn't tell me to do it. But one of them said, you're going to say what we say from the pulpit every single Sunday, but they're not going to listen to us. So mm. take advantage of it. Go on this and like, you know, tell the truth when you're on it. Okay. And so uh, you talked about lament mm-hmm. while you were there. And what ended up happening when you explain and you're asking God's forgiveness for mm-hmm. this past of racial injustice and as a white person, and how do people react to that? Yeah, it's what set in motion what's kind of the stage two of my adult life call is um, all I talked about that is that that white Christians should be repentant for the complicity we've had with this and um, the the level of outrage because I'd only been in smaller circles up to that point so the fact that this was said on a national level the outrage was just it was so strong. And the, the outrage white, about from white Laquan Christians, McDonald's no, death? The, the outrage of white Christians to me saying that white Christians needed to repent. Okay. Um, I got so much hate mail, so nonstop calls, wow. death threats, everything. Wow. It was coming from white Christians. So that's when I realized that repentance is a word that Christians love in every arena except for race. And when it comes to race, mm. it's got a totally charged kind of feeling to it, which I think, again, comes back to the truth and lies. Wow. And so that's what I learned after the Quan McDonald thing is wow. if you try to talk about race and repenting for where we've been, nobody will get madder than white Christians. Okay. Um, you talk about as opposed to in the past where you kind of first went off into this journey to fix it, to come into the city. Yeah. And you, in, in the book, you talk about going from what do I do to what do I see? Yeah. Why is that an important transition for people? Yeah, so I think there's like one enormous hill we have to get over where we just even like moving from 
apathy and indifference to actually caring about it. So like that's one big awakening there is just to move from apathy to that. But once we actually care, what we have to realize is we spent our whole lives not paying attention to this thing. And so there's this monstrous reality that we just don't understand. And so once we actually care, that's not the end of the journey. That's the very beginning of the journey. And so we need to become graduate students of what this thing is and how to think about it biblically. That was Daniel Hill, the author of White Awake and White Lies, inviting us to become more educated about this major cultural blind spot we call race and to move from apathy to action and fighting for a biblical understanding and practice of justice for all. This is where you're from. I'm Russell Berry. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Mary Jo Clark, Daniel Ryan Day, and Jade Gustafson, and was engineered by Gabrielle Bauer. I also want to give a quick shout out to John and Curtis for their help in supporting and promoting Where You're From. Thanks, y'all. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast. Two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.